All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, hoping to finish the chapter today. We've been in it for quite a while, but uh, there's a lot here, and uh, it's good for us to go through it. Jesus has been, uh, remember, a couple weeks ago, he had called his disciples together, and he sent them out two by two, and he warned them as they went out, uh, warning them, telling them what to expect as they go out, and you would think that the world would rejoice, and, and they would love to hear this message of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and, 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 and certainly the disciples were thinking that as well. How easy could it be to go share this great news? Everybody likes great news. But unfortunately, we know that as we go out in Jesus' name, there is a conflict. There is a conflict because the gospel itself confronts natural man. And not everybody on the planet is a believer. Not everyone on the planet is saved, although God's heart is that everyone would come to repentance, right, and believe in him. And so when Jesus sends his disciples out, he has to be honest with them. He tells them the truth. And uh, because going out and serving Christ in, in any culture, in any country, wherever you are, is always going to be difficult. Because one thing that we have in common as people is that we're nasty, rotten scoundrels. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Yes, that, that's it. We, we've, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all have this rebellion against God, and we don't want anything to do with them. But thank God that he does whatever he does in our hearts. To, and it's just a mystery of how he does that. And he does it through preaching. He ministers to people through hearing the word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So he sends his disciples out, telling them, Hey guys, they did it to me, they hated me, they persecuted me. One day soon they're going to crucify me and they're also going to do it to you. So don't be uh, taken aback by that. Don't be stumbled by that because this is just par for the course. This is just part and parcel of what I have been doing and what you are going to go through as well. And he also taught, on, uh, and we're going to look at this morning, and look with me in verse 27 of chapter 10, and I'm just going to read down through uh, verse 33. We're going to finish the chapter, hopefully, but just get down through there, and then we'll, we'll talk. So he says, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, there's a word you don't hear too much in churches today, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are, worth, uh, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And, uh, and so, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, guide and direct us, Lord, as we uh, open this up and just uh, guide and direct us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The fear of God is such a, a wonderful topic, and it's something that not, none of us really like to talk about. But the fear of God is very healthy. Because for the church of God, for those who are believers in Christ, we have a fear of God. And the Bible speaks of two different types of fear. 
One is a reverence or an awe, a respect, if you will, and the other one is a mortal terror, a fear, like I'm terrorized, and those are the two different types of fear that are spoken of in the Bible. And as believers, we no longer have to fear God in the sense of a mortal fear, of a terrorizing fear, because our sin, the, 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 the judgment that I deserve and that you deserve as well, has been taken out upon Jesus on the cross. So that has been taken care of. <clears throat> we, don't know, we no longer have to fear God in that regard. We don't have to fear what he's going to do to us because of our rebellion. But there are those who have not received Christ, have rejected his overtures of grace and forgiveness, and they are the ones that really have to worry because there stands a holy God who is very serious about sin. And in the church today in America, we're not very serious about sin anymore. We're not serious about um, taking stock of our own lives and really examining ourselves daily and say, Lord, I, you know, I've allowed this certain thing in my life and I've gotten so comfortable with it, yet I know it's not your will. I know it's not something that you desire for me, you don't even want for me. And yet I'm continuing to dabble in it. Well, you know, it's time that we grow up. It's time that we grow up. And we call it what it is. And we have to examine it and say, you know what, no more. I'm not going to allow this thing in my life anymore. I know it's wrong. I, I've gotten so used to it. I think that God is okay with it, that somehow he condones this issue in my life that I've gotten so comfortable with, this, this besetting sin, whatever it may be. And folks, we cannot approach our lives that way. We need to fear God. And certainly the unbeliever fears God. And if they don't, they should. They should fear God because Almighty God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipresent. You can't hide anything from him. You can't do this deed in the darkness and not expect to be seen by God. No, God is almighty and all-powerful, and he knows everything. And it's foolish for us to think that he can't see and understand and know intimately what we are doing, what we're thinking, and what we're hiding and for the natural man, the unsaved person, they need to fear God with a mortal terror. Because one day, and this doesn't, God doesn't love this, I know this, but this is true of him. They will stand before him and there will be no mercy at that point when they stand before him at the great white throne judgment. There ought to be a great fear of God. A great fear the one who spoke everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, don't you think that he has the power to make mountains crumble and oceans to war, to make things that, have, that, ha that, that aren't seen happen? He, he's able to, we've seen that throughout history. We've seen it, things that just seem, there's no way this can happen, and then the very next day it happens. How, how did that happen? But God. And this is the same God who is all-powerful, He's all-powerful, folks, and this is why it's so important that we fear God. Yes, even as believers, I, I have a, a terror of God, but not in the sense of uh, I'm going to stand before him and be judged uh, you know, whether I'm going to go to heaven or hell. No, if I'm a believer in Christ, you're, you're going to stand before him and you'll be judged in, in, a, in, in a good way about whether you know, re rewards and things like that. But the unbeliever will stand before him in mortal terror, and there'll be no hope for them.
And see, that's why Jesus sends out these men. And that's why Jesus still sends us out today. Because, folks, this is the most important thing in the country. It's the most important thing in the world that we get this message out. We never stop giving it out. And don't get tired of the message. It's a very simple message. A child can understand it. A child can receive Christ. Let's go back to verse 27. Let's take a look at it. Notice Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And see, this is one of our greatest pleasures as children of God, and that is to proclaim Christ to proclaim the truth of the Word of God, to proclaim the gospel, and it is good news. It's the best news going, folks. But in order to tell the good news, you first have to tell the bad news. Never tear away from the good news the bad news. You have to give the bad news as well. Because I don't need a Savior unless I need to be saved. And why do I need to be saved? Because I was born in sin, and I'm continually sinning, and therefore, I need a Savior. I need the bad news first. Uh, but it is our great pleasure to do that. And what does Isaiah tell us? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, in the world and the culture that we live in today, it's riff with fake news, it's riff with deception, and truth is not upheld. It's shunned at every corner. The truth is even more refreshing then for the believer because we, we, when we hear the truth, isn't it uh, refreshing not only to hear but to share? When, I, when you hear something that you know is truth <clears throat> and everything that's happening, I don't know about you, but I, whenever I hear truth, even in the worldly things, whenever I hear truth, it does my heart some good because I'm like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is good. And this is why I dwell on the Word of God. This is why I want to encourage you to dwell on the Word of God because it is truth. Everywhere around us, not so much. But here in the Word of God, it is truth and it's our foundation. It's, it's, it's like an oasis. I don't know about you, but when you, when, with the deceptions that are happening and the things that are happening in the world, don't you long for truth and justice? And then you read in the Word of God that truth and justice is very real. God shows us it to us in the Word of God, and he also tells us that it's coming. Man is having his time in the world right now, doing his own thing, but God is going to interrupt man. He's going to interrupt him, and it's going to be quite the event. Right? We read about it in his second coming. It's going to be an event that the world has never seen, the world will never see again. It's one moment in time where God will arrive on the scene physically in the, in the face of Jesus Christ to judge an ungodly world. Of course, the church will have been raptured before then, and we will be in heaven in glory with him, and then coming back with him as he takes care of business. What does Romans 10, uh, verse 14 tell us? I love this. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, Paul says to them? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, and we just read it in Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring good tidings of good things. 
but they have not obeyed they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says lord who has believed our report and then he goes on and he says so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god notice that in order for something to be heard it first has to be spoken seems very logical doesn't it in order for you to hear something, it first has to be spoken. And we are to speak what has been spoken to us, and thereby faith is exercised not only in the hearer of what we share concerning the Word of God, but we too ourselves are the beneficiaries of that truth as well. Because as we speak, our own ears are hearing it again, and it's affirming our faith too. And notice that what Jesus is saying here is making manifest or obvious what was quietly heard or heard in obscurity. And we need to hear the truth and then give out that truth freely, unashamedly. I want to be like Paul who says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. We need to be preaching from the housetops that which was spoken to us in quiet And the things that the Lord shows you, folks, in your quiet times, take those things, those treasures that he gives you, that he shows you, and give them to others. Give them to others. The Christian walk, remember, is one of receiving and giving. And I'd like to give you this analogy of the, uh, of the, of the Sea of Galilee, as you can see in the photo that's up uh, before you. But the geography of Israel, and specifically of the Sea of Galilee, you've heard this before perhaps, is a wonderful picture of how we ought to conduct our lives. Because way up north is the Mount Hermon, and the Sea of Galilee receives the waters from Mount Hermon. And it takes them down through the upper Galilee, or upper Jordan, excuse me, feeding those fresh waters into the Sea of Galilee at the top. The Sea of Galilee receives that water, that fresh, cold water from Mount Hermon, and continues to send it in the lower Jordan all the way down to the Dead Sea. But when you get to the Dead Sea, it's landlocked. And therefore, the water is stagnant and it's salty. There's other variables here that I won't go into, but you got the idea. We, We need to be like the Sea of Galilee. It receives from above this fresh living water and it takes it It is nourished by it, and then it gives it out from underneath. And see, that's what our lives need to be like. We need to do the very same thing. What does it say in Proverbs 23, verse 23? uh, Solomon says, buy the truth and do not sell it. The idea is do everything that you can to obtain. Do everything that you can to obtain it, but do not sell it. In other words, give it away. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Pardon me. And David in Psalm 40, what does he say? I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. Of course he did. He, he hid it within his heart, but he, didn't. he wasn't content in just taking it in for himself and becoming a fat sheep with all this information. No, he says, I've taken it in, but I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared it. Your faithfulness and your salvation, I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. I I, I always want to be giving out. And what does Paul say on his third missionary journey? Luke tells us in, in Acts 20 that from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. 
And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you in trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews, also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 26, and he says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So David and Paul, all, I I want to give it. I want to give it away. And that's what we need to do. Whatever we hear in our ears, in the obscurity, in the quiet, in the secret place, share those things openly. Share those with people around you. And notice what he goes on in verse 28, and Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is comforting, isn't it? (laughs) On the one hand, because whatever we do in our service for the Lord, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we lose our life. That's the worst thing that can happen. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's pretty bad. (laughs) I don't want to lose my life. Thank you very much. And nobody does. Nobody looks forward to physical death. But for you and I, the believer, that's the beginning. That's really the beginning. And Do you really believe that? Do we really believe it? Because we can hear it, we can hear it preached, we can hear it said, but I would encourage you to really think about that and say, Lord, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that once I die physically, I'm going to heaven because of my faith in Christ? I mean, you can believe it. It's a truth, you can, but do you? Because if you do, it will affect your life. It will have a, uh, a certain uh, uh, facet. Your life will change. The timbre of your life is going to exemplify that truth that you believe in. Because if I don't believe it, then my life is not going to demonstrate it at all. In fact, I'll be running in fear, hiding in the caves, running away from God rather than running into the fire and saying and pointing the finger right at the enemy. And see, somebody who does that has come into contact with God. But when we, when we cower in fear, there's something not right. And we need to advance. We need to share the truth. Now notice in verse 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him. This word is phobia, uh, uh, forbio, excuse me, and it literally means to be alarmed uh, or to be frightened, but, but it can also mean to revere. Um, so depending on the context of a passage, that word could mean two different things. We know that in uh, Genesis chapter 1, when uh, Abraham was offering Isaac, what does it tell us in, verse, uh, in chapter 22? It says, Then they came to the place, Abraham and Isaac, of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, put him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand to take the knife to slay his son. But the angel of God called to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. (laughs) I'm really glad you showed up, by the way. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know. Do you think that God knew beforehand? 
before Abraham went through the act of raising that knife, knowing that all the promises that God had given to him were laid up in this son and his son and his son. Do you think that he was a little bit ambivalent about running that knife through his son's chest? You better believe it. But he was going to do it. And he raised that knife and God says, now I know that you fear God. I know that you reverence me, Abraham. And the truth of the matter is, because God's omniscient, he knew beforehand. But there's something about the person having to go through the act, now they know. God knew all along, but that person, Abraham, now he knows, and God knows. And God knew that all along, but it, it can't be given until he actually does it. He actually goes through the motions of, I'm going to do this. And God... Uh, 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 he, he, um, what's the word I want? He put it in his bank of, of faith because of, of what he did. He, he apportioned that for righteousness for Abraham because he believed God when it was horrible. It was a horrible, detestable thing for human sacrifice, and Abraham knew that, but he also knew God's voice. And that's even more interesting. He knew God's voice when God would say, sacrifice your only son. But wait a minute, God, you brought me out of the Ur of the Chaldees. We were doing that kind of stuff there, and I know that's not your heart. Why are you telling me to do this? I know that that's not right. Trust me, Abraham. Okay. I don't get it. I'm completely clueless, but I've heard your voice. You called me out of the Ur of the Chaldees. I know that voice. I know how you've spoken to me, and therefore I know that you're speaking to me, and it's not just some demon trying to you know, uh, uh, influence me or something. I'm, I'm hearing your voice, and so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do it. And he does it. And thank God, he, God intervenes. Do not lay your hand on him, for I know that you fear God. The idea here is reverent. I know that you reverence me, and certainly Abraham feared him. Certainly he did. And fear can also mean a dread, a frightening terror kind of fear, like we see in Revelation chapter 11, right? What does it say? Now, after three and a half days of the breath of life, uh, uh, the, uh, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, speaking of these two witnesses, that remember that the Antichrist has killed in the midpoint of the tribulation. He kills them, and three and a half days later, they rise up on their feet, and notice what it says. Now, after that, God entered them, uh, and, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And the fear here is very different than reverential fear. This is a holy dread. They've never seen this before. They've seen their bloody bodies laying in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and all of a sudden, boom, and then they shoot up into the sky. And everybody, CNN, everybody's there, and Fox News, they're all there with their cameras going, can't believe this, what do you think? You know what it was? It was a UFO that took them, right? And here, they're, they're gone in fear. They're losing their minds. The whole world is freaking out. Never seen anything like this before. But great fear fell upon them. And this fear is phobos, which is a terror. Every person ought to fear God. And we talked about this before. The believer's eternal punishment was taken care of on the cross when God the Father judged our sin in the, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So the believers 
ultimate damnation has been taken care of. It's not going to happen. But the unbeliever should fear God because every moment they are in jeopardy because without the Spirit of God and, and being obstinate and unrepentant in their sin and rebellion, they, without the Spirit of God indwelling them, they're in jeopardy every moment of eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. For the unbeliever, there ought to be a mortal fear. Remember Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, gave a sermon back in 1741 in Enfield, England, called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And I actually read that sermon last night. And he needed to call unbelievers to repentance. He needed to call them to repentance. And by the time he finished, history tells us, and I believe this is an accurate account, there were people crawling up to the altar to receive Christ. They were so torn up about their sin and their rebellion. They knew what they had done was wrong. And they were crawling up to the altar because they were so convicted in their sin. So convicted in their sin. And I wonder if there aren't as many conversions to Christ these days because pastors no longer want to talk about the fires of hell. And I wonder if churches are content at sharing the gospel, but not sharing the bad news either, taking the teeth out of the gospel. They don't want to talk about eternal torment and eternal damnation. It's not fun to talk about, but it's the truth. And this is serious stuff. Our eternal eternity rests upon our understanding and our response to this truth, doesn't it? And people are often very cavalier about where where they'll spend eternity because... They're in good health, they're young and strong, they have, they have um, you know, they're doing well, but they have no control, really, over what's going to happen next. Remember those five teenage girls from Fairport a few years ago, on a trip to the Finger Lakes, one of the Finger Lakes, and they were killed in a fiery crash. They didn't wake up that morning thinking that that was going to happen. They had the whole world. They had their whole life ahead of them. Who am I going to marry? Oh, I like this guy on the football team. You know, and I like this guy, and he's a cute guy, and I'm texting back and forth. And they have this excitement, this youthful, you know, excitement of their life. They had no idea. But because the message of the cross has been so watered down in many churches in America, the natural man, he doesn't feel compelled to receive forgiveness in Christ. He doesn't see the need for Christ in his life. And as a result, he continues in his sin, and it's destroying him little by little. He thinks he's in control and that he can get out anytime he wants to, but he's unaware that he is like that frog in that saucepan that has warm water in it. And the frog is resting in there, and the water's nice and warm, and everybody's happy. And little by little, the flame starts to go up, and that frog, and of course, this is nonsense, but the idea is, 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 is critical, because that frog gets so used to the warm water, little by little, that there comes a point where he can't get out. And see, that's the unfortunate thing that people think. They, they think that I can pull the plug on this thing anytime, and I can get out of this, and I can be fine, and I can escape. My sin. I can escape the judgment of my sin. And the unbeliever may flirt with the idea of giving their heart to Christ because they feel sorry for Jesus. But they are the ones who need to be sorry. And this is not an easy message today, and we don't talk about hell 
a great deal. We talk about it when it comes up. And today it is here. (laughs) And so we must talk about it. But we ought to fear God. And the unbeliever rarely has the fear of God, except in moments of great distress. Remember what it says in Psalm 107? Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters. I love this psalm because it's so pictorial for me, because I've been in, on the ocean in, in the Atlantic and in the Gulf of Mexico, and I have experienced this very same thing that, the, that, that is described here. And it is, it'll, it'll, it'll make you a believer in Christ really quick. It says, those who go down into the ships or the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and they stagger like drunken men. And they are at their wits end. And I have been here. I've been out with some commercial fishermen in Florida. And and we got into a storm miles out into the Gulf of Mexico. And the waves are huge. And the boat is just this little thing. And we're just rising up like this, and the boat is going down, and you're just like, this is it. You're at your wit's end. And you know what? Foolish me, I didn't even know Christ at the time, but I became a believer that day, temporarily. (laughs) I was crying out to God. I was confessing things I hadn't even done. (laughs) But notice, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses, and then he calms the storm so that its waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet, and so he guides them to their desired heaven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. I like that. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for all of his wonderful works. And the believer in Christ, you and I, upon conversion, we have this innate sense of the awe and the reverence of God because of how we've been convicted of our sin and we've experienced forgiveness. But the unbeliever... Not so much. They don't have that confidence. And what what does John tell us? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who has not been made perfect, or excuse me, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. It doesn't mean that we'll never experience fear. You know, if you're swimming in the Gulf of Mexico and you got a cut on your leg and you see a lot of fins coming at you, you're, you're not going to rejoice, are you? You know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have a, a fear. <laughs> but I also know, hey, you know what? <laughs> this may be over in a few minutes, but then glory. <laughs> and I don't need to fear. But I, I really don't need to fear because much of the stuff that we fear never comes to pass. That's a, a statistic. The overwhelming number of things, and it's in the high 90s, of the things that we fear never actually come to pass. They're things we worry about. But notice in the last part of verse 28 in our text says, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Notice that the verse above, Jesus says to fear him who is able to destroy. Underline that word able because he is able to destroy both soul and body. But although God is able to destroy or annihilate the soul and the body, the sinner will be given, just like the saint, a resurrection body that will be able to withstand their eternal abode, whether it is glory for the saint or Gehenna or the lake of fire for the unrepentant sinner. 
He's able to annihilate them, but he doesn't annihilate them. No, it's even worse than that, I'm afraid. Because what does it tell us in John's Gospel? Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has also granted the Son to have life in himself and has given authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Notice, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's hopefully all of us. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. What? You mean it's not just I'm dead and that's it? No, when you die physically, there's going to be a resurrection for them too. They're going to be resurrected with a body that's going to be able to withstand the flames of fire forever. That's a message you don't hear very often. But it needs to be shared, folks, because it's the truth. And there are those who believe that once a person dies, that they simply just cease to exist. And the Bible does not teach that. Jesus never taught that. It's called annihilationism. Jesus taught that hell was real and was one of torment. In Luke's gospel, remember when he spoke of Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus? There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which is a a Jewish euphemism for heaven, for glory. But the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades... In hell, he lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the finger, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Is is this just a story? Is it just an allegory? No, it's not. Jesus is speaking of the reality of heaven and hell, of Hades. And also, the wicked dead will endure an eternal punishment. It's not only a a place that is of torment, but it's also an everlasting punishment. It's not annihilationism. It's not for a brief time, but actually it's everlasting. Mark's gospel tells us that, but whoever causes, this is chapter 9, verse 42, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him that a millstone were hung about his neck and he'd be thrown into the midst of the sea. So if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, I wouldn't recommend if you got a problem with theft or something to cut it off because your heart is really the problem, right? Not so much your limbs. But that's how serious we need to take sin. We need to take it seriously enough that we might be willing to do that. But it's the heart that needs to change. It's not the hand. So if your hand causes you to to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed, meaning in heaven maimed, hopefully you repented, rather than having two hands to go to hell. And the Greek word there is Gehenna. It's speaking of that yet future time. Not Hades right now, but Gehenna. The final resting place for all of the wicked dead. See, when a wicked person dies today, they go to hell, they go to Hades. 
But there's coming a time, and we'll look at this, that God is going to take everyone who is in Hades, and they are going to be sent to the lake of fire. Everlasting torment. Everlasting damnation. The lake of fire. And do you think that God is pleased with that? Do you think God is happy about that? The word of God is replete with phrases. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He'd much rather they live and come to Christ and repent. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, it says, Then he will also say to those, and and this is um, uh, Jesus speaking of this separation of the nations. We call it the sheep and the goats judgment right at the beginning of the millennial reign or at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back, however you want to think about that. Right at that point, he's going to have a separation of the nations. And he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. He's going to send them to Gehenna. The fire, notice, prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't even prepared for man initially. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Can you see the, the heart of God? It was really for them. But those who follow them also go to the same place. And notice in the, in the passage in Matthew 25, verse 41, that it's an everlasting fire. And then Jesus, in verse 46 of Matthew 25, he says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then in Matthew 13, Jesus speaking on the parable of the weed and the tares, what does he say? Therefore, as the tares are gathered together and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, speaking of that final place, Gehenna, the lake of fire. Back in our text there in verse 28, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body. Hell in this verse is literally the word Gehenna in the Greek. And it's a reference to a trash dump at the southern end of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It's there today. Actually, there's a highway going around it now because there's the Temple Mount and then there's a sliver of land called Mount Zion and then right to the south of that, there is a a road actually, but back in the days of David and those kings, that used to be a landfill and they used to burn children to Molech. They would sacrifice children postpartum. They would take the child and lay them into a molten image of Molech. Postpartum abortion. And, they, and it was always on fire, this place, because they would burn their trash. And they called it the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And it was also called Gehenna, because it was a place of fire all the time. And so Jesus now is speaking of Gehenna, the yet future. And Josiah, perhaps the greatest reformer king in Judah, being a, a, a heart, a, 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 a man who loved God with all of his heart, 
seeing the, the breakdown of Jerusalem and all of the decrepitness from Manasseh's reign and just seeing the horrible idolatry, what does Josiah do? Just with a, with a great heart for God, he tears all that stuff down. And it tells us in 2 Kings 23.10 that he defiled Topheth. Topheth is that area that I was speaking of in the southern part around there where the valley of the son of Hinnom, that was called Topheth. And he broke it down, he defiled it that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech anymore. He, def- he defiled it. So it's referred to the lake of fire also in the eternal abode for the wicked. In Revelation chapter 20, uh, actually turn with me, if you would, to Revelation. I, I share with you a lot of scriptures up here, but I want you to see this. We, we've, we've spent so much time in this. There's so much here. But this is so important to understand. <clears throat> Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. So at this time in Revelation... Jesus has come back to the earth. He's placed the false prophet and the Antichrist into Gehenna, the lake of fire. He's already placed Satan, and we'll see this in a few minutes. He's already placed him in Gehenna. But notice what it says. The great white throne judgment for those who have rejected Christ. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. Notice, these are their deeds, and you will see this. Books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And so the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death, or Thanatos, and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged at that great white throne. They were brought, they were resurrected, they were brought up from these places, and were cast into the lake of fire after their judgment. And this is the second death, the Bible tells us. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It doesn't sound like a good thing, does it? But see, that's what's coming for the wicked dead, for those who have rejected Christ. Now, this is not an easy thing to say, but we have to say it. I don't know about you, but what got me into the kingdom of God was a fear. (laughs) I had a mortal fear of God. Someone shared with me that my sin was going to lead me straight to hell. And I believed it. In my heart, I knew it. And it was the fear of God that saved my soul. So I'm not afraid. And neither should any of us be afraid to tell the harder thing because that harder thing, someone had the guts enough to tell me, Rob, what you're doing right now, and and, and a friend of mine pointed out some sin issues in my life, and he goes, those things are going to send you straight to hell. And I'm like, what? I thought I was a decent guy. Not according to God's standard. You're a nasty, rotten scoundrel. And you're going to go to hell if you don't repent and give your heart to Christ. It got the job done. I went up to my room that very night and I cried and I wept and I begged God in tears, convulsively, on the floor. I remember this so well. I remember the the pine floor that I was soaking with my tears. 
begging God to forgive me. It worked. The fear of God. Don't be afraid to share the difficult things. It's the fear of God that brings many. It brought me, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not afraid to, to tell people. Now, obviously, we have to do it carefully and lovingly. And the disciples did too. They needed to share these truths, and they did it in a way that wasn't like, you know, waving a Bible and you better give your heart to Christ. You know, it was none of that. It was none of that. The delivery is so important, and, but we, knew, we do need to tell the truth. So heaven or hell, Hades right now is a temporary holding place for the wicked dead until death and Hades, this holding place for the wicked dead, it will ultimately be sent to the lake of fire. And I'd like to show you, I've actually got on my slide, it's a slideshow of hell, and that's really what it is. I want to show you something, and, and I'm sure you're all excited about this. But on the right, is uh, this is a demonstration to see visually what the Bible has told us in Revelation 19 and 20. So you can see what is happening. So on the right side, you have this red circle called the lake of fire, the ultimate resting place for the wicked dead. And then we have the abyss, this place in hell, this compartment somewhere. We don't really know. It's called the bottomless pit. But notice what happens. The beast and the false, uh, the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet. It tells us after Christ comes back that they, those two, are cast into the lake of fire or Gehenna immediately, and then after that, what happens? Satan himself is thrown into the bottomless pit or the abyss, which is probably a compartment of Hades somewhere. And then what happens? It tells us that in, at the end. Because Satan is cast into the abyss until the thousand-year reign is completed, but then he must be released again. And so in Revelation 20, verse 10, at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the millennial reign, what happens? He, too, gets sent into the uh, lake of fire, or Gehenna, the eternal resting place. And so now, the false prophet... The, the Antichrist, Satan, are in the lake of fire. And then what does it tell us in Revelation 20, verse 13? We just read it, that death and Hades, everyone who has gone to hell, as far as people are concerned, are in this place. They will be sent to, ultimately, the, the, the lake of fire, which is called the second death. We would call it Gehenna. Jesus refers to it in our text this morning as Gehenna. This is the last final place. So what happens? Death and Hades are sent to Gehenna, the final abode, and then all of those who are not written in the book of life. So it all ends up at Gehenna, at the lake of fire. See, a believer, when they die, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go to, we go to glory with him. Our body may go into the ground, but our soul, our spirit, our, you know, we, it goes to heaven. But when a wicked person dies now, they go to Hades. Yes, it's a torment place. It's not a happy place at all. But that's not it for the unbeliever. Because at the end of that thousand-year reign, Hades and death are going to be cast into the final resting place for the wicked, and that is the lake of fire, often called Gehenna. Jesus, when he used hell in verse 28, or I think it's verse 28, um, and 28 there, He's speaking of Gehenna. 
The eternal resting place, that's where it's going to happen. He has the ability to destroy both body and, and soul. But it's going to be eternal. Eternal condemnation. And a body that can withstand it forever. And see, I can tell by how silent you are. This is a real drag. It really is. But God loves. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But we choose. We choose whether we are going to spend an eternity with God the Father or whether we're going to end up in this place. I don't know about you. I don't want to go to that place. And I don't have to. And I won't go to that place because I've been saved. And I, I know that I'm going to heaven because of his work, not mine. Follow me? And so give your heart to Christ. Give your heart to Christ. Now, we're going to go quickly through the next part of this. And then we'll take communion together. And notice what Jesus says in verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? And the answer is no. He knows exactly what's going. He, he said in Matthew 6, uh, verse 26, he said, uh, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather in their barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more worth more value than they are? But your very hairs of your head are all numbered. And, you know, we lose hair every day, and we have no idea <laughs> that it's being lost. But God knows. And if something's so insignificant, like a hair on my head, he's got numbered, how much so for the real important things of my life? Oh, so much more important, aren't they, than just the hairs of my head. Something insignificant. Like we, Many of you have, you're losing hair all over this place today. Thank God we vacuum. I'm just kidding. But we do. And it's, we don't even know what's happening. And it's so insignificant. God goes, I know. That was hair number 10,145. But I care more than just the hairs of your head. I care about you care about you. You're a soul. You're a person that I've made. I've created in my own image. I've got such a great plan for your life. And you know, God knows every heartache that you've ever had. He knows how many nights you've cried yourself to sleep because of your sin and the consequences of your sin. Even now, he knows of the wayward child or children who has continued in rebellion that you have. They're ruining their lives while you watch from a distance and, and they've shunned your overtures of truth and love. He's aware that your marriage is on the rocks and that you're dying inside, hoping that God opens the heart and the eyes of your spouse. He is aware of your fears concerning your finances and future stability. He's aware of your fears concerning the state of the country, politics, and morality, and justice, and law, and accountability. He's aware of all these things. And what does he say? Do not fear, therefore. You are worth more value than many sparrows. Notice that Jesus is placing the order of living things in their proper order. Remember in Genesis when God created everything? He didn't create man first, did he? No, he had to create man last. Because before he puts man into this place, he has to create things that will sustain man. He created the heavens and the earth and the water and the, and the plants and the birds and, the, and all of the beasts of the field. He created all those things. And finally, lastly, on day six, he creates man. Because man needs those things to survive. 
everything in its order, and the capstone of his creation is man. The Bible calls us his workmanship. In the Greek, poema. You're his workmanship. He cares. And you are more important than any of the animals. You are more important than the plants. And so when we kill animals to live, you know, we got to do it humanely, you know, for food and stuff like that. But he does it because you are more important than they are. But he loves them and he takes care of them as well. Do you follow me? But somehow in our culture today, they place animals on a greater plane than man. I'm not advocating that animals should be treated poorly or tortured. No, not, not at all. But God did create them for us to live. A man will be fine for mishandling his dog or treating his dog poorly, but a child who survives an abortion attempt in a hospital can be denied health care to survive it after they come out of the womb. They tried to abort it in the womb. It's still alive. It's still hanging on to life. And as soon as the kid comes to life, now they're developing laws where they just say, well, just kill it. Get rid of it. Oh, wait, it's a female. It's a male. Made in God's image. They don't care about life, but God, God forbid you touch the dog, but kill the human being. Incredible hypocrisy, incredible evil. God loves the sparrow, he made it. And he says, aren't, the spar- aren't you more worth than those sparrows? And those sparrows are insignificant to us, but to God they are not. And yet he calls those things to serve us. We have to be good stewards, no doubt. We have to be kind But God knows what's more important, the animal or the creation or the one who he created it for. We have to understand that biblically because today everything is going to pot. Everything is going to pot. What does it tell us in Romans? That professing, and this is speaking of the ungodly man today, professing to be wise, they become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the the creature or the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Aren't we seeing that today? Anything but a person, for heaven's sakes, don't touch the spotted owl, but kill the kids. Do you realize how devilish that is? Do you realize how nonsense? It doesn't even make sense. It's the worst possible thought, and yet it's embraced. Shame on America. Shame on every institution and doctors who perform this stuff. And shame on administrators. I don't care if they're Republican or Democrat who do this stuff. Shame on them. Democrat or Republic or Independent. They serve the creature rather than the creator. And God says, I put the creation at your fingertips, Adam. It's to serve you. Now give them a name because there's, you're to have dominion over them. But people today put the animal plane above man, and yet God made man the capstone. Do you follow? And what's happening today? And then we wonder why we're in such hell. I don't think hell is Gehenna. I think hell is America. Not quite, of course. I'm, I'm being facetious and 
maybe, maybe God, in the end, will, instead of sending them to Gehenna, the lake of fire, I'll just send you to America. They're, in, they're engaging in everything. Verse 32, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's important for us to proclaim Christ to anyone and everyone. Are you willing to share that truth? Are you willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? This denial of an individual before God the Father is not just some kind of temporary moment of fear, which we have all gone through. You might be at Wegmans, and the Lord is putting on your heart to share with somebody in the checkout line as you're standing there waiting for somebody to get their coupons out of their purse. And so you're, you, you get this unction, and, and then for fear, or for whatever it is, you don't say anything. It's not talking about that. I mean, that's, that's something that we got to deal with, right? But it's not speaking about that, but it's speaking about a life that has continued, continued in rebellion, has no desire for God, doesn't want to the life of Christ, doesn't want to even speak of Christ, but yet they call themselves a Christian and they go to church. That's the person this is for. Do not think, verse 34, that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but this message is going to create division. And many of you know this already. Do not be discouraged or disheartened in the fact that when you share the Christ who is in you, don't be afraid when your family members are no longer wanting to feel, they don't feel comfortable with you. You know, they'll invite you, uh, everyone else, for Christmas dinner, but for some reason you didn't get an invitation. And on Thanksgiving, they're calling up everybody else, but you're not invited. They don't even want you to send gifts to the kids. And they're certainly not going to let you have them for a weekend or to take them out to the mall, take them out to miniature golf, because you belong to Christ. Because you belong to him, the enemies will be the... Now, does that mean that we should treat them poorly? No. We just have to realize that that is just part and parcel. We're to love them even though it kills us inside. You may be even angry. Take it to the mat. Take those emotions, that desire, that frustration. Take it to the mat. Go in before your prayer closet and say, Lord, I am just so sorry. I'm, I'm so sick of my heart and I'm, I'm, I'm angry. I just want to lash out. And the Lord's like, I know, because I've been there. I'm here to comfort you. See, that's what we need to do. We can't take it out on them. They're just pawns. They don't even know. Because they're not governed by the Holy Spirit of God. They're governed by the spirit of this age. And if you're not governed by the spirit of God, you're governed by the devil. I'll just put it in brass tacks. That's what it is. That's it. I'm either governed by the spirit of God or the spirit of this age. And the spirit of this age, we know who the father of that is. It's not Jesus. But it's very common for a son or daughter to be saved and to have their father or mother, who's a staunch believer of another religion, casting them out of the house, disowning them. And this is especially true in the Middle East in the Muslim and the Jewish religions. Receiving Christ in those religions is like receiving an eviction notice from the family and even a death sentence. And this has happened. I've known people 
who have grown up in the, in, the, um, in the Catholic Church, they get radically saved and are set free from their sin. They love Christ with all their heart. They want to read the Bible now, now more than ever. They go to the Bible studies. They quit drinking. They can discontinue illicit relationships. They stop swearing like a sailor, and the family hates it. I want the old guy back. I want, the, I want the one that was, you know, thieving and drinking with us after, you know, after mass. I, I want that guy back. I don't want this Jesus person. And now you get saved and now you want to read the Bible? <laughs> well, you're not going to do it here. Wait, I thought, we were, I thought we, were, we were Catholic, Mom. We go to church. This is what it's about. It should be about Jesus. Well, it's not about Jesus in this house. Hey, I'm being honest. This is really uncomfortable for me to say because some of you are like, I'm never coming here again. (laughs) But I'm telling you the truth because I know people who are in the Catholic faith who have had family disown them. And I've also known a young woman who used to sit right here many years ago. She was from uh, Iran. And she came here from Iran, and she came here to go to the university. And while she was here in the university, she got radically saved, she and her brother. And they both realized we can't go back home. Our parents, our family, the men in our family are going to kill us. She actually had to get, <laughs> i got to be careful here, she had to get legal papers drawn up so that she could stay here for fear of her life. And she stayed here in America because if she went home to that Muslim uh, culture, that religion, her own father would have probably beaten her to death. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Notice that we are to love our family, but our love for the Lord should be so much greater, right? It should be much greater. And he who does not take his cross and follow me, follow after me, is not worthy of me. Taking up your cross can include bearing the reproach of Christ. Those who have criticized you and scorned you because of your relationship with Christ. It can include persecution, but it also means willing to take humiliation and following Christ no matter what, even to death. Because the cross is an instrument of death. It is an instrument of death. And he who finds his life, Jesus says, will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who finds his life will lose it. This is the person who has no regard for the Lord's will in their life. They make their plans. They plan their life. They continue in those plans. And subsequently, it may be a pretty decent life. Maybe it's okay, but they'll never know God's best for them. They'll never know God's plan for their life and what was really best for them, what he created them to be. And I love the fact that when you find what God has created you to do, there is nothing you'd rather do in your life. You're like, I am so glad that now I know what it is, and I'm going to go after it with all of my guts. I'm going to go after it with everything I've got. There's nothing greater in the world, folks, and I'm living it. And I am so blessed. And I'm so thankful. I truly am. I get to do this. If I, if I didn't have to live and actually receive some kind of paycheck, I would do this for free. It'd be nice. 
Maybe I need a wealthy benefactor like, you know, never mind, I won't say that. We, we actually do have a wealthy benefactor, and he provides all of our needs. I'm, I'm just being silly. And a little levity right now would be good, right? So we're good. But if a person continues in a Christ-less life, in a Christ-less, and they die Christ-less, then they will not be mentioned before the throne of heaven and they will spend an eternity separated. And Jesus goes on finally, and then we'll take... If the worship team could come on up and... But Jesus finishes, and he says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So there are rewards in glory for the believer. For little small things, God is not so much concerned about the big things. Well, I led this African nation to Christ. I went over there on a mission trip, and I swung in there on a vine, and I stomped down, and I said, repent or die. And they all flocked at my feet, and I handed out tracts. And they all got saved. <laughs> That's, if that really happens, great. I mean, not with the attitude, of course, but, but the little things. The little things that you do are important to God. The little things. Don't be afraid of the day of small beginnings. Start small and don't worry. Just do the right thing. Every single moment of your life, do the right thing and you will be rewarded for it. We're rewarded for a blessed life now on this earth with persecutions, but in the life afterwards, everlasting life with Jesus. It, it really can't get any better than that. It really can't. I want to encourage you as we take communion together this morning that as, um, as the worship team uh, leads us, just take inventory of what was said today. It was some pretty difficult things. But these things are real. And I pray today that if you're a believer in Christ, including myself, that we would take inventory of our life and that we would not play games with things that we know that we're doing that are not right. That we would be those examples to our family and friends, to each other, to the world around us, that we would take those things and say, you know what, I'm done. Will you be done? It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You're going to still mess up. But what is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. It's a promise. Take that promise and run to the bank with it. And if you're not a believer this morning, you've heard an earful today. And I would encourage you to give your heart to Christ. He loves you so very much. And even after the service, if you want to receive Jesus... Come up if you want. I'd be glad to pray with you. If I'm, not, if I'm with somebody, then grab somebody and just say, hey, I want to receive Christ and just pray. All you have to do is confess your sin and receive Christ. It's that simple. Confess my sin and receive him as Lord and Savior. And then you read and you pray and you come back to church and get built up and get encouraged again. And you keep doing that. And then you keep sharing those things that you learn, just like the Sea of Galilee, right? We receive from above, we're blessed with it, and then we give it out. 
That's the whole purpose of our life. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this time, and I pray that, Lord, you just encourage us as we take communion together in Jesus' name. You remember the night that Jesus was taken after he had this, what we call the Last Supper. Uh, that night he did something different. Uh, in, in the Passover meal, what we're doing right now wasn't part of the Passover meal. It was something that Jesus appended to it once for us to continue to do, and we do that to remember his death. And, and that's why we take these tokens, the bread signifying his body that was broken for us, and the cup, meaning the blood that was shed on the cross for him. We take these things, and as we do, we ingest them. We take them down to the very innermost part of us. And, and that's the whole idea, that the truth of the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that would be living in the very center of us. And that would manifest itself out in very practical means, practical ways to everyone around us. And so, Lord, we take this knowing that your body was broken for us. Let's partake. And Jesus, when he passed around the cup too, he said, this is the blood of the New Testament, New Covenant. Take it in remembrance of me. And as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. So let's take it together. It is a great privilege to take communion with all of you, knowing that we are all on the same page. When we take communion together like this, we are affirming and confirming what Jesus did. And to have anybody in any room like this, this number of folks, number of people, to agree on anything is a miracle. <laughs> and yet, we agree on this, do we not? It is the thing, the central thing, the only thing, the most important thing that holds us together, the body of Christ. What a wonderful thing. So let's stand and pray. Thank you for your patience. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we pray that you bless us, Lord, encourage us. And Lord, again, I pray for anyone uh, here this morning that has heard this message that has not been easy to hear, I know. Lord, I pray for them, and I pray that they would give their heart to you today, God, that there'd be no one left in this room, Lord, that hasn't uh, given their hearts to you. And Lord, have the assurance, having the assurance then of salvation in glory in heaven forever, rather than hell where there is torments forever. But Lord, to be with you where there are pleasures forevermore, holy pleasures. Lord, how we thank you for that. And pray that, Lord, you would encourage my brothers and sisters. I pray for each one of them as they leave this place today. Lord, that you would encourage them, that you'd bring them good health. Lord, that you would give them, uh, just renew your spirit within them, and myself included. Lord, give us new hearts and new minds. Continually fill our, our minds with good things, Lord. Help us to renew in the spirit of our mind, Lord, these things by reading your word, cleansing our hearts, Lord, giving us the the, the endurance and the love and the grace to live in the world that we do. Lord, help us to do it with joy and with gladness. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. Hope to see you back here tonight at 6.